What a cool morning. I mean, to be able to celebrate the work of God in a person's life, that's awesome. And then we also have some guests with us this morning too. We have about 50 noblemen with us today. We have these, these are college students from CU with the Navigators Ministry. They're going through a 12-week program learning how to be a godly man. And I, I understand you've had little sleep this weekend, right? Okay, well, I'm about to give you about 30 minutes of it. So keep going, here we go. Yeah, no, it's great to be able to worship today and let's just jump right in now to God's word. You know, the wilderness, the wilderness is an unforgiving kind of place to be. You're far away from the comforts of home and you're far enough off the grid that when you're there, survival is a full-time job. There's the task of finding food to eat. There's the task of finding shelter, finding security from the elements and just being able to avoid those hungry predators that might want to devour us. You don't really choose to go into the wilderness as a destination, but you might have to go through it in order to get from the place you are to the place you wanna be. There are some though for whom their life is so difficult so dangerous that they might even seek refuge in the wilderness because life out of the wilderness is so hard. And did I mention that there are predators there? We begin this morning with this statement that says that David saw that Saul had come out to seek his life. David was in the wilderness of Ziph at Horesh. The predator is a person, but don't think that he's not wild. Saul has two ingredients that are pretty bad for a king to have. He's jealous and Saul is insecure in his own power. Saul is a loose cannon. He's, he's a troubled soul and he's been chasing David. And as we, we see in this verse here, he's, he's on the prowl trying to take David out. David is worn down, he's beat down. We can imagine he's tired and exhausted. And it's in that place that David needs something that if he could just get that one thing, it would be a total game changer for him. In fact, you and I need this one thing in our lives as well. Is it a helicopter rescue? Security forces, some kind of special ops team to come in and just rescue David out of there? No, no, no. What David needs and what you and I need in our lives is a friend. The text says next that Jonathan, Saul's son, rose and went to David at Horesh and strengthened his hand in God. Jonathan goes to an exhausted friend, somebody who's tired emotionally, tired physically, tired mentally, and even tired spiritually, and he goes to him to try to boost up his strength. That's what a friend does. If you're joining us for the first time this morning, I wanna welcome you to Calvary. We are at the midpoint of a series that we're calling Flourish. We want to live lives that flourish. And we happen to be of the belief that flourishing in life is not about money. It's not about a big house. It's not about having a great vacation. But to flourish in life, we all need loving relationships. And the kind of loving relationships that we're going to look at this morning are those of a friend, the loving relationships of friendship. 
Because without friendships, our lives can be really miserable and they will not flourish. In fact, we look around today and people have observed how if you just look at our society, it seems like loving relationships between friends, is kind of in short supply. People have speculated, well, why is this? And is it because of technology? Because as much as technology might keep us together, technology can also pull us apart. Maybe it's the conveniences of life. I mean, just think about it. We can order virtually anything we want online. We can have curbside pickup. We can have DoorDash. We can go to the self-checkout. We can even work from home. We have remote work so that I don't even have to leave my house in order to get my job done. All of that is really, really, really convenient, but it also keeps me from ever developing relationships with my coworkers in a way that I would if we were face-to-face. You know, whatever the culprit for it though, we know that things like loneliness and social isolation are deadly. Loneliness is a subjective feeling where we feel like we're isolated. Loneliness has been traced to all kinds of psychological problems in people's lives. Social isolation is a more objective standard that researchers use to actually assess people's relationships and the depth of those relationships But social isolation also causes its own share of problems. You may be familiar with this already, but last year the Surgeon General of the United States released an advisory. And in that advisory, he said that loneliness is far more than just a bad feeling. It harms both individual and societal health. It is associated with a greater risk of cardiovascular disease, dementia, stroke, depression, anxiety, and premature death. And then you can see the rest of the quote here. The mortality impact of being socially disconnected is similar to that caused by smoking up to 15 cigarettes a day. It's even greater than that associated with obesity and physical inactivity and the harmful consequences of a society that lacks social connection can be felt in our schools, workplaces, and civic organizations where performance, productivity, and engagement are diminished. Okay. They summarized all of that by saying our society is one where we are angry, we're sick, and we are alone. That is not a flourishing society. An advisory was issued thousands of years before that advisory, and it summarizes all of that in these words from Genesis chapter 2. It is not good for us to be alone. We're going to look at the friendship, the relationship that forms between Jonathan and David because in that friendship, we see some key traits that we can apply to our own lives. I just want to give you the disclaimer at the start. There's no way that we're going to cover everything we might want to know about what it looks to love love our friends like Jesus, what that looks like. There's no way we can cover all of that in a comprehensive fashion. But we are going to see some key traits that we'll draw out of the story of their own friendship. And as we do that, my hope for all of us is that we would be able to apply that to our own lives so that we can go after and engage with others in the same kind of friendship that we see in the pages of Scripture here. Okay, so to see that, we're going to rewind from where we started. We're going to go back to the start of David and Jonathan's friendship. Back to chapter 18, verse 1 of 1 Samuel. If you have your Bible, I'd invite you to turn there. I will have verses up on the screen as well. 
This is where David and Jonathan's relationship begins. It says this in chapter 18, verse one. As soon as he had finished speaking to Saul, the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David and Jonathan loved him as his own soul. And Saul took him that day and would not let him return to his father's house. Then Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as his own soul. Okay, we're just jumping into the midpoint of a narrative that's been flowing already. And so we read this part and we may not know exactly what's going on. If you went to chapter 17 of 1 Samuel, you would read there about the famous episode of David and Goliath. There though, King Saul doesn't even know who this young man is who has just taken out this Philistine giant, Israel's enemy. And so he has to inquire, whose son are you? And David has to explain to him that he is the son of Jesse, the Bethlehemite. He's from Bethlehem. So Saul understands now who David is. And as soon as David had finished speaking to Saul, the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David. Isn't that a remarkable expression about friendship? That one person's soul would be knit to another person's soul. What an incredible picture. We might use the phrase, well, we're soulmates, or we're cut from the same cloth, or we're two peas in a pod. There are a number of ways we might express this kind of level of interaction, this level of closeness between two different people. And we see it beautifully portrayed here in this phrase that one person's soul is knit together with another's. It makes me wonder my own life, just as I was preparing for this morning, thinking, man, who, whose soul is my soul knit together with? Maybe you'd wonder that for yourself too. Whose soul is your soul knit together with? But I want to just step away from what's going on here for a second because I think it's important to point out that this doesn't happen with every relationship in our life. It can't, in fact. There are people who have written about this. One example of that would be Jerry and Mary White. They wrote a book called Friends and Friendship. And they just categorize different levels of relationships that we might have with other people. In the most broad category, the people who are kind of at the furthest radius away from our lives would be acquaintances. Now we might have hundreds and hundreds of acquaintances. These are people who we meet maybe in social settings. We interact with them, say hi, they say hi back to us. They're pleasant people to be around, but they're not somebody who you're gonna invite over for dinner. These aren't people who you're gonna spend a lot of time with or you're going to initiate with them. Those are acquaintances. Okay, closer in, you have casual friends, people you see on a regular basis. These are, these are neighbors, maybe they're coworkers. Maybe these are people you see at the gym when you're working out. And you might have some shorter conversations with them. You kind of get to know them well. But again, it's not like you're going to spend holidays together. With those people, maybe you have 20. Maybe you have in as many as 100. You might have that many casual friends. But then close friends. These are people you talk to frequently. Maybe you haven't seen them face to face in a while because you moved away or they moved away. But you talk to them frequently. And when you're back together in person, it's like you never left. You can just pick right back up where you left off. And then in the closest, the closest place where you would say your soul is knit to their soul, those are your closest friends where they know, they know your dreams, they know your disappointments, they know your failures, they know what makes you tick. And there's a chance that what makes you tick is similar to what makes them tick. See, we read this about Jonathan and David and it's kind of amazing that just all of the sudden, 
they show up in the same scene together and then their, their souls are knit together. You might wonder, how, did, how does that actually happen? Well, if you go back and you read like chapter 14, verse six, we're reading about Jonathan before this point, And we read about some of Jonathan's exploits. And Jonathan does something very David-like before David even shows up in the picture. And it says that Jonathan says to his young man, this armor bearer with him, he said, hey, let's come. Let's go over to the garrison of these uncircumcised, the Philistines. It may be that the Lord will work for us for nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or by few. That's the kind of boldness that David might express. So when we're, we're reading about David, we're kind of reminded like, wow, that sounds familiar. That sounds like something Jonathan would have done. Usually when your soul is knit together with another person's soul, there's a common ground. There's a common bond. And here we see this courage, this boldness, and this deep faith in the Lord to provide. But not everybody's going to be like that with us. So when we think about friendship, when we think about loving others the way Jesus loves us, we're not just talking about people with whom we have this deep, close connection. In fact, some of the most loving things we can do are those things we do for people who are kind of outside, more in the periphery of our lives, to welcome them in, to show them love, even though we may not be soulmates exactly. Okay, if we go back to the text though, then we read about these other expressions too, that Jonathan loved David as his own soul. We see it repeated again. Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as his own soul. Again, another remarkable expression of what it means to truly love somebody. When we love them as we love ourselves, there's some powerful things that can happen that flow out of that. But it talks about this covenant that Jonathan makes. A covenant, I'd just like to su suggest for this morning, is a commitment. A covenant is a commitment between two different parties, and in this case, two friends. It's a covenant that says, hey, I'm committed to you in these ways, and I'll be committed to you in these ways. And we agree on that, and it's like a bond that keeps our relationship together. Friendship at its very core is a commitment of some kind to another person. But it's not just about words. Jonathan takes action. We see that next in verse four, where it says that Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was on him and gave it to David and his armor and even his sword, and even his bow, even his belt. So Jonathan is wearing the clothes that are appropriate for the king's son. Jonathan is wearing the clothes that designate him as the one who's going to follow to the throne after his dad is not there. And he removes all of those symbols of status and power, prestige, and he gives them over to his friend. As Jonathan reduces his own status, he elevates the status of his friend. Does that remind you of anyone? About a thousand years later, the Apostle Paul is writing to the church in Philippi. And he says this in chapter two of Philippians. He says, let each of you look out not only to his own interests, but also the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. What an amazing picture of what Jesus has done for us. We just had this series out of the book of Revelation where we talked about the majesty of the throne room of heaven. 
And Jesus stepped down out of that in order to take on humanity. But not just any form of humanity, but Jesus took on even the form of a servant. Maybe the most vivid picture of this is in John chapter 13 where Jesus washes his disciples' feet. It says that Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, that he'd come from God and was going back to God, he rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, he tied it around his waist and then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. We love like Jesus when we make a sacrificial commitment to another person. We love like Jesus when we make a costly commitment to a friend. It's exactly what Jesus has done. That's what Jonathan does for David. But what does this look like in our lives? I don't see any sons of a king or sons of a queen, daughters of a queen in here. So I'm assuming that this isn't even a possibility for us this morning. But there are other costly ways we might give of ourselves and make a commitment to another person. Let me share one quick example of how that's worked in my life. So when Katie, my wife, and I were first married, we were living in Utah. We had just graduated from college. I went to the Air Force Academy. She went to CU. And we were living there in our first kind of taste of life away from college, life in the real world. And we go to this church and we meet a couple there and we get to know them a little bit better even during that first meeting. And, and they invite us over to their house right away. We have lunch with them. They get to know a little bit more about us. We get to know a little bit more about them. And Jeb and Val became good friends of ours, some of our best friends for that stage of our life. And Jeb told me, he said, Perry, I know that you guys are a one-car family and you're trying to do two different jobs in two different places at the same time and you need another car. So, hey, I'm kind of mechanically inclined. If you happen to need somebody to look over a car that you're thinking about buying, bring it by, I'll check it out. So I do that and Jeb actually saves me from buying a couple lemons. And then one day I, I buy a 1995 two-door Honda Civic, the white rocket, all four cylinders. <laughs> and I'm driving in this car with Jeb and Jeb, Jeb goes, hey, Perry, stop, stop. Did you hear that? Like, what, what are you talking about? Did you hear that? No, I didn't hear anything. Roll down the window and make a slow but sharp turn and then listen. Did you hear that? Uh, no, I didn't hear that. That knocking noise. Yeah, I think it's probably your CV joint. The boot is probably cracked and you're gonna need to replace it before it gets any worse. In fact, we should probably just replace the whole half shaft because it'd just be easier to get that job done. Let's go to the auto parts store. We'll get that taken care of. We'll get all the parts bought and then we'll reserve a spot at the auto shop so that we can do the work there ourselves. Jeb is initiating this whole thing. And I'll never forget that Saturday morning where we took a few hours to do this work. And I'm standing next to Jeb and I might as well have been standing next to a brain surgeon in the operating room because I'm useless to him. And he's stepping me through these, these processes and trying to make it seem like I'm actually a part of what's going on. And he was so committed to getting the work done that day because he was so committed to me. Look, that's a simple example but that's the kind of thing that we do that's loving like Jesus for another person. When we commit our time, we commit our energy, maybe we commit some resources to them. Those are the kinds of things on a much smaller scale, but the kind of things that Christ has done for us.
things turn really quickly for David. Because it says at the end, verse 5, chapter 18 there, that David is so wildly successful. And that is exactly the problem with Saul. Because David's success is a threat in Saul's mind. So when we meet them up in chapter 19, we see a different situation at play. Here's what it says there. And Saul spoke to Jonathan, his son, and to all his servants that they should, they should kill David. But Jonathan, Saul's son, delighted much in David. And Jonathan told David, Saul, my father, seeks to kill you. Therefore, be on your guard in the morning. Stay in a secret place and hide yourself. And I will go out and stand beside my father in the field where you are. And I will speak to my father about you. And if I learn anything, I will tell you. And Jonathan spoke well of David to Saul, his father, and said to him, Let not the king sin against his servant David, because he has not sinned against you, and because his deeds have brought good to you. For he took his life in his hands, and he struck down the Philistine, and the Lord worked a great salvation for all Israel. You saw it and rejoiced. Why then will you sin against innocent blood by killing David without cause? And Saul listened to the voice of Jonathan. Saul swore, as the Lord lives, he shall not be put to death. And Jonathan called David, and Jonathan reported to him all these things. And Jonathan brought David to Saul, and he was in his presence as before. I'm not sure I would have wanted to go back. Look, again, this can be hard to relate to. We might be impressed by it, but when we're thinking about standing in the way to make sure that our best friend doesn't get killed by our father. That's just something that's hard to relate to unless you have a tie to the mafia. But the point is that there are words in this narrative that don't need to be here, but they're there to emphasize certain things that help us see the tension of what's happening. Look with me at these words. Saul spoke to Jonathan, his son, and to all his servants. They should kill David. But Jonathan, Saul's son, delighted much in David. And Jonathan told David, Saul, my father, hear my father, my father. These words don't need to be there. We already know who Saul is and who Jonathan is. But the point is that this narrative is emphasizing the relationship between a son and his father. David and Jonathan made a covenant to each other. And now that commitment is being put to the test here in these verses. And Jonathan is in a terrible place of loving his dad, wanting what's best for his dad. We could say in the language of our series, wanting his dad to flourish, but seeing no way out of how that is a threat to his friend who he's made a commitment to. That's an impossible kind of situation. So Jonathan has to figure out how to still honor his dad and honor his commitment to his friend David. What we see here is that there is a loyalty, a costly kind of loyalty that can come with friendship. We make that commitment to another person. Maybe we even back it up with some actions on our part. But eventually there may come a time where we have to advocate on their behalf. We have to take up their own cause and that's exactly what we see Jonathan doing here for his friend David. Jonathan is initiating everything here. He's telling David about the plan that's a threat to David. He's telling David what to do and how to respond. And then he's going to his father and having this really difficult conversation on behalf of his friend. 
And in so doing, Jonathan is acting as an advocate for his friend. Does being an advocate remind you of anyone? You know, in the New Testament, Jesus is described using that very word in numerous places. One of those places is written by John. It's in the book of 1 John chapter 2, verse 1, where he says, My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. If we would have kept reading on in that passage in, out of chapter 19, we would have seen that, that Saul actually takes up the cause that he, he goes to his father, I mean, rather, Jonathan goes to his father Saul to do that, and that he puts in a good word. Well, Christ has done far more than just putting in a good word for us. And that's where we see this difference between Jonathan serving as an advocate and Jesus serving as an advocate. With Jonathan, we see that David is actually innocent before Saul. But with Jesus, all of us are guilty before God. All of us are guilty. But that kind of advocacy is something that a friend does for someone else to display the love of Jesus to them. We see that we're not only loving like Jonathan, we're loving like Jesus when we take up this kind of cause for a friend. In the book of Proverbs, we read in chapter 17, verse 17, it says, a friend loves at all times and a brother is born for adversity. At all times might be in big things and little things, everything in between, but there is a brother, an even closer kind of relationship, a closer kind of commitment who is there especially for times of adversity. And David is in the greatest adversity of all when we see him there in chapter 23, where we began. So let's go back there now. Chapter 23 says, David saw that Saul had come out to seek his life. And David was in the wilderness of Ziph at Horesh. And Jonathan, Saul's son, rose and went to David at Horesh and strengthened his hand in God. And he said to him, do not fear, for the hand of Saul, my father, shall not find you. You shall be king over Israel, and I shall be with you, next to you. Saul, my father, also knows this. And the two of them, they made a covenant. Made a covenant before the Lord. David remained at Horesh, and Jonathan went home. In order for Jonathan to even know that David is in this situation, Jonathan has to be current with David in their relationship. It's possible for us to lose touch with other people, and then we have to be caught up, or maybe we hear it from somebody else about what's going on in this person's life. But again, for one person whose soul is knit to another person's soul, that requires a level of intimacy, a level of information, a level of currency, so that you know exactly what's going on at any moment in their life as well as you can. We can't do this perfectly. We're not omniscient. But we see that Jonathan has this level of awareness of the situation. It probably doesn't hurt also that your dad is a part of it in a bad way. That probably helps him grow in his awareness. But we see that Jonathan He doesn't just know the information, but he acts on it. And he goes to be present with his friend. One of the most loving, one of the most powerful things we can do for a friend is to sit in the darkness with them. Just to be present by their side when they're going through great adversity. Just to be 
with them physically can speak volumes without us ever even having to open our mouths. But Jonathan knows enough about David's situation. He knows enough about David, period, to know that David needs to hear something. And so he goes to his friend and he tells them these words, don't fear for the hand of Saul, my father shall not find you. You'll be king over Israel. I'll be next to you. Saul, my father knows this. What Jonathan is doing is he's speaking words that are, are building up David's faith. They're reminding David of who's actually in charge, that God is the one who actually is overseeing life. Jonathan's not right that he, he actually won't be by David's side when David is king. But Jonathan is confident that God has a purpose and a plan, even for this dark moment that his friend is in, and that God will bring about a deliverance. So a friend is somebody who makes this kind of costly commitment to another person. A friend is somebody who takes up the cause of another person. And a friend is definitely somebody who strengthens the faith of another person. It says right there that, that they make a covenant again, just re-emphasizing that covenant, that commitment, re-emphasizing that their relationship that began under better conditions still holds true through this great adversity that they're facing. Friendship needs to do that. True friendship needs to weather the storms of life and the good times and the bad times, our commitment is constant. Sometimes we have to renew it though and we definitely need to renew our strength, our faith in the Lord. Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote these words back in the 1900s. He said, the Christian needs another Christian who speaks God's word to him. He needs him again and again when he becomes uncertain and discouraged. The Christ in his own heart is weaker than the Christ in the word of his brother. His own heart is uncertain. His brother's word is sure. We need each other to remind each other of the things maybe that we already know, we've already heard them, but we need to hear them because the circumstances of life have a way of draining us, of depleting our faith. And David is certainly in a set of circumstances himself that would drain a person's faith and confidence. You can just imagine David thinking, God, if all of your promises for me are true, why am I hiding out in the wilderness? Why does it seem like my life is just this close from being taken from me? And Jonathan is there to encourage and strengthen David's faith. It's what a friend does. I think if you, if you look at this and just summarize this, we might say in the words of Proverbs 27, 17, that as iron sharpens iron, so one person sharpens another. So where does this leave us? If we go back to the beginning and we see that the commitment, the costly sacrificial commitment that Jonathan makes with David, if we look at the way that Jonathan takes up the cause of his friend, and if we see the way that they strengthen each other's faith, and Jonathan especially strengthening the faith of David, I think we can just say that we love other people like Jesus when we give of ourselves for their good. We, we love other people like Jesus when we're willing to pay the price that it takes to love them for their good, to see that, that their commitment to the Lord would endure, that it would, it would weather the storms of life. We give ourselves to the good of a friend. That is a powerful thing. And ultimately, that is a Christ-like thing. 
We've already looked at John chapter 13 where Jesus washed his disciples' feet. A couple chapters after that, John chapter 15, Jesus is with his disciples and he says, this is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. What have you been commanded to do? To love like you've been loved by Christ. That's what we're doing. That's what this is about, to flourish. Where we take the love of Christ that we have received into our own lives and we love other people with it, that it flows through us, that we reflect that same love. Are we going to be called to literally lay down our life for another person, like die on behalf of another person? Probably not. Could it happen? Sure. Will it happen? Probably not. But we might be caused to make a costly commitment towards somebody. We might be called to to take up the cause of somebody that that forces us into some really difficult, hard situations, but they are our friend. We love them as though we love our own soul. When we do something for them, it's like we're doing it for ourselves. And we definitely need each other to lift up and strengthen our faith together. When we do these things, we are loving like Jesus loves us. And when we do these things, we can expect that not only will we flourish, but the people around us will flourish. That's what this is about. We give ourselves for the good of those around us. We will see people flourish. And as we give, we flourish ourselves, which is in God's economy, the way things work. Things that feel like a sacrifice, feel like, things that feel like they're just, we're just pouring out can often be things that actually fill us back up that enrich our own lives so that we might be people who flourish too. Let's give of ourselves. Let's give of ourselves so that we might be a community of people who flourish together. Would you pray? Father, thanks for your goodness towards us. Thanks, God, for your word that instructs us, that clarifies for us what what it looks like to love somebody like we have been loved. So God, I pray for my friends in this room this morning that Father, we would have hearts that are not just self-focused, self-absorbed, self-seeking, but that we would have hearts that look at the needs of those around us. And Lord, that we would love those people around us, love each other as though we're loving ourselves. God, thank you for the fact that we have the perfect example of this through Christ. And I pray, God, for the strength now of your spirit to be able to live this out, be able to live this out here at Calvary, be able to live this out in our life groups, in our classes, in our men's and women's Bible studies. We would be able to live this out in the way that we serve locally around around the world even, Lord. But I pray as well in our homes, our living rooms, our dining rooms, our kitchens, that we would also love each other this way. I pray for our workplace Pray for our neighborhood, for the grocery store, for the gym, for every place that we go to, Lord. I pray that we would long to see the lives of people around us flourish. Lord, we, we know that this is possible as your love flows through us. So God, may we be good funnels of your love and your grace and your mercy to those around us. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.